Hello, hey Boomer listeners. So good to be with you today. My name is Wendy Green. I am your host and I have a promise that I make to you every week. And that promise is that you will find some inspiration in every episode of Hey Boomer. You may be inspired to recognize your own relevance or to recognize opportunities that are available to you in your 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond. You may be inspired by the educational topics that we're going to talk about, like the one today. Or you may be inspired to work on finding that inner peace and acceptance of where you are at this particular stage of life. Those are my promises to you as Hey Boomer listeners. I'm, I'm really excited to have our guest today, Dr. Jason Karlowish. He is a physician and he is a writer. And we are going to talk about a book that he recently wrote called The Problem of Alzheimer's, how science, culture, and politics turned a rare disease into a crisis and what we can do about it. Critical. I first heard Dr. Karlowish talk about his book on Brene Brown's show, and I was really curious about the title. So I wanted to learn more, and I reached out on LinkedIn and was able to connect with him and some of his uh, colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School and um, got the book. So I, when I started to read the book, I have to tell you, you know, the problem of Alzheimer's, that's a heavy title. And I thought, well, this is going to be a tough book to get through. Not true. Dr. Karlowish is an excellent storyteller. And the book keeps you absorbed as he goes through the history of Alzheimer's, how the impact of war and global conflict affected where we are today. And he shares personal stories of some of the patients that he has encountered and how they have managed the journey of Alzheimer's. So I, I highly recommend this book for anyone because Alzheimer's is, um, you know, it's all around us, whether it's in your family or friends. So it's a great book to read. A couple of weeks ago, I shared this story with you about my grandmother and when we went to visit her, my daughter and I, and played the violin for her. And um, I also mentioned during that story about the frustration that my father had as his mother, my grandmother, descended deeper and deeper into the throes of the Alzheimer's disease. This was in late 70s, early 80s. We didn't know too much. In fact, I don't know that she was ever actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, certainly dementia, senility, whatever it was that they called it at, at the time, but there was no not knowledge given to the caregivers about what to do and what to expect and how to manage it. And he was so frustrated with her when she was getting more and more forgetful. Eventually it got to the point where, um, 
they were not able to care for her. She was not able to care for herself. And they had to work her finances to where she was able to be declared destitute so that Medicaid could cover her care in a nursing home. And the sad reality is we are not, have not made much progress since that day. So we're going to talk about some of that too. It's an important show. Um, please share this with your friends. If they can watch it live now, that's going to be great because then they can participate with comments and questions in the chat box. And I see all of you that said hi. Um, if they can't watch it live, please tag them so that they will be sure to see the, the recordings and let them know that it's going to be available on the various podcast channels starting tomorrow. And with that, let me bring Dr. Carlowish on. Hello, Dr. Carlowish. Hi, Wendy. Good to be here. Uh, Greetings from Philadelphia. <laughs> Is it cold there? Getting, you know, it's, we're, we're easing into autumn here. And no? I'm bringing you from my office on campus at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, we are glad to have you. Thank you. Let me do a brief introduction of your biography a little bit. Um, so as I mentioned, Dr. Carlowish, Jason Carlowish is a physician and a writer. He is also a professor of medicine, medical ethics and health policy and neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's co-director of the Penn Memory Center, which he talks a lot about the Memory Center in the book. Dr. Carlowish researches and writes about issues at the intersection of bioethics, aging and the neurosciences. As I said, he's the author of The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. And he also wrote a novel called Open Wound, The Tragic Obsession of Dr. William Beaumont. And he just writes essays and writes, he writes. <laughs> um, he's also the project leader of a website that I'm going to share with you later, but it's called making sense of alzheimers.org and it's a creative space for understanding the past present and future of alzheimer's disease making sense of alzheimer's is an evolving forum for conversation about the disease it's a collection of ideas that capture the many dimensions of alzheimer's through the perspective of caregivers patients artists researchers and clinicians so fascinating website um, definitely encourage people to take a look at that. And, and like I said, we'll share the, the website later, but it is called making sense of alzheimers.org. So I'm grateful to have you with us today, Dr. Carlowish. It's good to be here, Wendy. Thanks. Really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, there's a lot to get to. So let me just jump right in. Um, I mentioned at the opening about my grandmother and my father's frustration with it and the lack of knowledge and information that there was available to him. But from what I'm reading in your book, or I read in your book, that is still a problem. That's so, correct. yeah. So could you talk about why that's still a problem this many years later? Yeah, um, you're right. So the Alzheimer's Association uh, was founded essentially in 1980. And among its missions were to improve um, the quality of care or the even access to care for persons living with dementia and their family members. And very quickly, 
the founders of the association, uh, particularly, frankly, the women like Hilda Prigian and Bobby Glaze, recognized that the gap, um, the gaps were many. One of them was a lack of any skilled physicians, but the other was the lack of any long-term care services and supports in the community. In fact, you know, um, both women told stories of the struggles they went through to find someone to help care, help them care for their husbands. In the case, for example, of Hilda Prigian, she needed someone to be with Al or some place for Al, her husband, to be, so she'd go to work. Because mm -hmm. if she wasn't working, there'd be no money coming in. If there's no money coming in, well, the rest is just a tragedy. And she would speak about the need to address the impoverishment of America's families, and she would testify to Congress on that. Um, because what she was she and her colleagues identified was that the Medicare statute, which was passed into law in 1965, um, signed into law by President Johnson, um, has a list of, of exclusions from coverage. In other words, the statute says we're not going to pay for these things. And it's a list of about 12, 13 things. And in between item eight, orthopedic shoes, and item 10, cosmetic surgery, is item nine, and it's custodial care. And that was the term then to describe what we would now call long-term care services and supports, custodial care, which says a lot about the attitudes of 1965, that the care that someone needs to function in the community given by another human is considered like the work of a janitor, mm -hmm. mopping, sweeping, and cleaning. Um, so the statute will not pay for long-term care services and supports. And that statute is still the statute on the books. There's been no effort to either A, strike item eight, or you know, more sensibly to um, create a long-term care social insurance program to provide the backstop to the American family to address, to put it bluntly, the risk of becoming a caregiver. Because the risk of becoming a caregiver is ultimately a financial risk. And just to wrap the point up, the reason why, you know, politicians and advocacy groups are able to say that Alzheimer's is a crisis that will, quote, bankrupt the America um, is because you're able to turn the work of caregivers, the work of your grandfather, the work of Hilda Prigian, my work as a caregiver, you're able to take that work and think of it as a job that either re requires a wage that would be paid to me if I charged a wage for my time, or I'm paying someone else to do the work of caregiving. And once you add up every caregiver's wage, there's maybe 12 million caregivers, depends on how you define them. That's how you get to the triple digit billion dollar cost to America. It's the cost of this vast unpaid labor force or the American family who's paying out of pocket to, mm -hmm. have, to, have, to get care for their relative. And you're right, as was the case with your grandfather, your grandmother, the only time the state will step in and help reduce that risk is if you yourself first suffer the risk of becoming impoverished. Or in the case of a spouse, um, divorce the spouse and then <clears throat> become just a free agent, if you will, in the eyes of the law. Um, so they're tragic choices, and I describe them in the book. And you're right, the same choices that your grandfather and grandmother faced um, some decades ago, unfortunately, remain the same choices that the American family faces today in 2021. Well, and some of the stuff that you talked about in your book, too, around caregivers is, you know, at the memory care center where you work, there are resources because it's part of the educational institution that give you the ability to spend time with your patients. Many doctors, when they see somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia, they don't have that kind of time to spend with the patient or 
their caregiver. So yeah. the knowledge doesn't get transferred very well. Well, it's even more insidious. The doctor generally doesn't even know that the patient they're with has Alzheimer's <laughs> disease um, or, or even has dementia, let alone whether it's caused by Alzheimer's disease. And that's because uh, the missed and underdiagnostic rate for this disorder, these diseases that cause dementia, Alzheimer's, Lewy body, et cetera, is enormous. Um, you know, if it was cancer, we would say it's a tragedy, you know, um, but for some reason we don't. So, so many patients are being cared for by physicians who just simply don't know the diagnosis. And, you know, these are the quote, oftentimes the sort of difficult patients, you know, the ones that, you know, don't seem to really get their blood pressure under control or, you know, miss their appointments or call the office five times to, you know, et cetera. Um, or they just simply disappear from clinical practice. They just stop showing back up. But you're right, if they do even have a diagnosis made, um, the physicians are woefully um, under-resourced to um, take the time to provide care. Because if you think about it, done right, care for a person living with dementia uh, requires time spent talking to that person to assess their symptoms, their signs, their mood, examine them, and also talking to their family member the person we typically call a caregiver or a friend in order to find out other perspectives on how the person is doing um, and make sure that the care, your uh, a care plan is in place. And so you, I don't want to say you double the time in clinic, but you certainly increase the time in clinic, let alone the number of chairs you need and space in your mm -hmm. waiting room. <laughs> right. And I'm joking about that because yeah. many exam rooms are set up for basically two people, the doctor and the patient. And when the family comes in, it's like people are sitting on exam tables or sitting on the exam stool or standing up, et cetera. Um, so you're right. The typical medical practice uh, in America, even in neurology practices, is not set up to address the particular needs of persons living with cognitive impairment, whether that's cognitive impairment caused by dementia or mild cognitive impairment, et cetera. Um, and again, all these are fixable things. Everything that we've just everything that I've just talked about does not require an effective therapy. It just requires investing in providing care. I'll leave you with one other, you mentioned our social work team. Not leave you, I'm staying here to talk more. <laughs> but, um, so we have a crack social work team that meets with patients uh, and family members after a diagnostic visit to put together a care plan and then is available over the course of care. And I would say in a typical clinic day for me, half my patients see the social work team uh, as part of their follow-up care. That team is made possible by Eli Kaplan's uh, donation and the donation of others to the Kaplan Family Fund, mm -hmm. the, caring, the Caring Difference Fund. So it's because of a generous philanthropist that we can cover their salaries. If we had to rely on uh, the revenues that come in through uh, billing to pay the salaries, right. for our, we wouldn't have, we'd, we'd say we wouldn't make their paycheck. We'd say we can't. And that's ridiculous. That would be like an, an operating room saying, you know, uh, we're not going to have any more scrub nurses or uh, we're not going to have the anesthesiologists because we can't pay them. So uh, we'll do this without that. I mean, which, right, which gets to the problem you point out about the business model. So there have been some attempts, let's say, to find funding. So there was something called HELP, the Hospital Elder Life Program, and then uh, to provide assistance. And then in 1988, Ronald Reagan signed into law the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act. And then yeah. a year later, they rescinded that act. Um, and, and one of the points that you make in the book is that there's not a viable business model for the medical community or maybe even the pharmaceutical 
community <clears throat> to support medic, uh, Alzheimer's disease? Well, the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry is desperately, uh, desperately, well, desperately looking. not desperately, um, does have a business model. I mean, for them, it's get an FDA approval of a drug and then market it and get insurers to cover it. And indeed, the events of the last few months, two, three months with Biogen's drug aducanumab have shown us how there's a robust business model in place for pharmaceuticals. And indeed, the FDA's decision, some speak of it as meritorious on the basis of spurring innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 and that's a reason to support the decision. So if you approach a disease with a pharmaceutical perspective, there is a very nice business pathway, business model in place to get from investment to return. Um, in contrast, though, what's the problem with this disease is uh, it doesn't have a business model, in part because it hasn't had an effective therapeutic. And I, what I'm about ready to say isn't something I think should be the case, but is the case in America. So when a disease has a business model in America, it means that after at a health system, patients are diagnosed and treated, that the cost of that work either is revenue neutral or even makes money. Mm -hmm. And if it's at least revenue neutral or makes money, it's worth having things in place to diagnose and treat the disease. If it doesn't, there's just not an incentive to build the center and staff it and provide the resources needed. And, and that's not just, that's, that's, that's the case across America until either philanthropists or research money or cross subsidies are in place from other diseases where there's a good margin, diseases without a margin really don't flourish in a healthcare system like that. I mean, and that you see that, for example, like psychiatry struggles to provide clinical services because psychi psychiatric diseases oftentimes are, are woefully under reimbursed. And this disease is in that category of diseases that just doesn't have a good business model. So I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's just the system we've set up. I'm just like sort of commenting, you know, in the Antarctic, it's very cold. And so you need <laughs> to wear warm things. And if you don't, you will freeze to death, at least until climate change defrosts the entire Antarctic. But <clears throat> this is just the way the world is. Now, it could be changed by changing the way we structure our healthcare system. But that's the system we've set up where certain diseases are very lucrative and others aren't. And if you're not a lucrative disease, it's hard to put together a clinical care program. Yeah, yeah. And you make that point very well in the book. So I want to go back to the title, which completely intrigued me, yeah. where, <laughs> where you say, uh, you know, obviously the problem of Alzheimer's, then you say science, culture, and politics turned a rare disease into a crisis. And it's so hard to imagine Alzheimer's as a rare disease when it is such a feared disease? Well, once upon a time, it was rare, um, but it was always there. It just wasn't seen as a disease. Mm. And these events that transformed it from a rare disease, a hidden disease really, into a very common disease began in the early 20th century in a very particular area, in a very particular, amongst a very particular group of physicians in a, in a very specific place, namely, psychiatrists who were trained in the German early 20th century German tradition, uh, which meant they were trained in a unique practice of what we now think of as psychiatry together with neuropathology. They did both of those things together. And they were really moving forward with research that was beginning to say that these many older adults with senility, 
meaning dementia caused by aging, which meant it wasn't a disease, right. no disease, just that's just aging. And if you say something's aging to medicine, that means we don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. If you say this problem is caused by aging, medicine says there's no disease there, so we're not going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And what these German neuropathologists, psychiatrists were doing is saying, I think there is a disease here. Alois Alzheimer's, Oscar Fischer, Max Belchowski, uh, G- uh, uh, Giettino uh, Perosini. That's what they were saying. And then all their work stopped. And because? then because culture and politics intruded. Remember, I said they were a very unique group of German neuropathologists and psychiatrists. But what happened in Germany in 1914? Oh, the World War I. Right. And the rest is uh, what they thought was going to be. Every time anyone says this war is going to be over quickly, it usually isn't. Mm-hmm. The war was not over quickly. Germany ended up losing, suffered afterwards, experienced economic and social disruption that just escalated and escalated until 1930. Three, when the country descended into just utter national socialistic chaos of of of, of just vicious anti-Semitism, nationalism, and uh, the rest is is the events of that. Oscar Fischer would be uh, killed in Thesenstadt prison by the Nazis, for example. His work came to a halt because of earlier anti-Semitic uh, programs in, in Prague. Anyway, so all that work got shut down by culture and politics. So it was this rare disease, unrecognized because the many elder adults who had actually Alzheimer's were just considered older adults with senility, extreme aging, nothing you can do about it, just like the winter, bundle up, stay warm, and struggle to the American family, to the families of the world. Um, so what the story of Alzheimer's, is, the problem of Alzheimer's is science and culture took this rare disease and said made it common by redefining senility as Alzheimer's. So that's how it became common. But then as politics kept intruding or doing what politics does, it doesn't intrude, it's always there. It's not intruding, it's just there. But in this case, with this disease, politics made it a crisis. First, as we pointed out in the early 20th century, destroying the work of the German neuropathologist. But then in the later 20th century, as I narrate using America as an example, um, the rise of uh, uh, antagonistic postures between the welfare state and opponents of the welfare state, contentions over family values, um, would all thwart efforts to improve the ability of the American healthcare system to diagnose and treat patients and the American social insurance system to provide families the care they need. And we're still fight- living those fights today that in America began in 1980 when um, Reagan was elected president and essentially adopted a very anti-regulation, anti-tax, anti-expansion of the federal government approach, which were not going to address the problems that patients with Alzheimer's disease and their families had. Uh, it was an antithetical uh, set of policies for improving care. Well, what you say, I was about to quote you from the book, chapter 17, which I thought was a very important chapter. And uh, you said, of particular distinction to the United States, Alzheimer's has been caught up in deeply partisan battles over the proper role of the state to support the lives of Americans, the role of women, the responsibilities of the family, and the politics of welfare. Cold War fears of communism, and I'm going to add now fears of socialism, created a healthcare system that is unable to either correctly diagnose or adequately treat patients. Our system was explicitly designed not to support care in the community or so-called long-term care or custodial care. 
And that's the point you were just making. Right. And that that paragraph, so you picked that out. That is really the summation of what, why Alzheimer's is a problem. Absolutely. Because it, can't, it isn't just one thing. In other words, for many, the conversation about why Alzheimer's is a problem starts and ends with there are all these older adults and age, chronologic age is one of the chief risk factors for developing dementia. And that is true. Chronologic age is a chief risk factor and among the fastest growing segments in our population in developed countries like ours is persons over 65, 70, over 80. But that doesn't explain why it became a crisis. In other words, if you had a healthcare system set up that could diagnose and provide treatment, et cetera, if you had discovered effective therapies, I don't want to say it wouldn't be a problem. That is to say, it would still be a disease, but it wouldn't be a crisis. The problem are all those things you talked about, antithetical attitudes to the welfare state, very strong views about family values that put women at the crosshairs of arguments about whether they should be working or not, arguments about whether caregiving should be recognized as a distinct role and therefore reimbursed by employers and supported by the state. Um, and then, you know, much of the antagonism towards expanding the social welfare programs, which of course is a loaded term in itself, <laughs> was rooted in um, the belief that, for example, well, um, th that to do that would lead America to socialism. Right. For example, before 1965, opponents to the what would become known as Medicare generally framed their opposition um, along the lines of if you create a national uh, uh, health insurance program, you will um, uh, be creating socialized medicine and it will be the first step towards a communist takeover of the United States. And, and that would be the rhetoric. They would talk about if you if you pass this into law, eventually Soviet tanks will be driving down Pennsylvania Avenue. That was the kind of rhetoric. What is interesting, as you've pointed out, is the rhetoric of the last national election very much painted any effort to expand the social insurance programs, to expand the infrastructure for care in America as socialism. I mean, that Absolutely. was the central argument made by uh, uh, President Trump in his reelection, which was these people are advancing a socialist agenda, and be, and once you and therefore you should oppose it. If I if you accept that it is socialism, there's no further conversation around the topic of what it is they're advancing. It's, it shouldn't be done, and right. it's a clever way to sort of tar your opponent, I suppose. But it doesn't advance a conversation of well, what are we going to do about helping the American family care for the millions of disabled older adults? Uh, disabled by cognitive impairment. And I mean, I'll just I'll wrap up my point with this. Much of the argument for opposition to expansion of social programs is around issues of freedom and liberty, that it's a, it's a taking from resources. Um, it's the state stepping into the family. It's And I guess my counter argument to that is long-term care social insurance is not going to take away our liberty. Alzheimer's disease is taking away our liberty. I mean, a daughter or daughter-in-law or spouse who's caring for a family member, she or he is experiencing his or her liberty being thwarted because their time is being taken up trying to take care of themselves and this other person instead of working or doing other activities that they could do if the state had provided some support to allow them to do that. And so, you know, Alzheimer's is, is long-term care social insurance is not going to take away our liberty. Alzheimer's is, and that's the problem. And it's taking away the liberty of the individual with it as of course. well. Yeah. Of course. Um, one of the things that you ha have mentioned in a couple of your comments is that it's hard to diagnose 
although we have some MRI or PET scans that can see some of the plaques, what makes it so hard to diagnose? Well, it depends on what the it is that you want to diagnose. And I don't mean to sound like the academic I am right now, okay. the campus of the university, which is where I am. <laughs> but if the issue is, I'm noticing that my cousin is having cognitive problems. He's repeating questions, repeating stories, missing appointments. The desk where his paperwork is, is disorganized. I want to figure out what's causing these problems. If the fem that, that requires a clinician skilled in the techniques of interviewing the cousin, interviewing the family member, examining the cousin, testing him and deciding, does the person have cognitive impairment? If they do, is it causing disability, meaning dementia, or is it just causing inefficiencies, meaning mild cognitive impairment? That's a set of skills on the part of a physician that a physician needs to have. And those are like other aspects of medical training, of health, of training to be a medical professional. Those are skills that take time and effort to learn. Um, and, and many clinicians simply aren't adequately prepared, skilled in doing that. And they're, they're not easy, not that medicine is easy, any of medicine. And, you know, they're, they're part of the set of training that you need to do. So that's one challenge to making a diagnosis. The other one, it, again, this is where I said it depends on what the problem is. So it's challenging to diagnose cognitive impairment. Is it present? If it is, how, how, what stage is it? What's causing it? So the next question, what's causing it, presents another set of challenges. Namely, we can order certain tests that can detect some of the pathologies that cause dementia, that cause mild cognitive impairment. Um, in particular, we have the ability to detect the pathologies that cause Alzheimer's, uh, namely amyloid plaques and tau tangles using PET scans. Uh, we can also see neurodegeneration, less brain cells that are dying using MRI imaging or, PETs, or metabolic PET scans. All these technologies are available, but most many physicians aren't skilled in knowing when and how to prescribe them. Uh, they're woefully underused and or misused, overused, or the system won't pay for them. So the, the tests that can detect the pathologies, tau and amyloid, are both FDA approved, but the insurers will not pay for them. And, you know, their argument, I think I can see both sides, which is, I don't, they, you know, we haven't made an adequate case for whom these tests are reasonable and necessary and therefore should be reimbursed under the um, uh, uh, social insurance for uh, healthcare that we have in this country. And that's an ongoing set of debates um, that take us back yet again to the right. quest to discover a better drug therapy. Yeah, yeah. So Congress is responsible for a lot of the funding that goes towards disease research. And you talk about the funding for cancer and heart disease being an easier sell Mm -hmm. to Congress than Alzheimer's disease research. Why is that? Yeah, it goes back to early to the late 80s, actually. So you're right. Um, uh, since about the early 1970s under the National Cancer Act, the National Cancer Institute uh, enjoyed uh, an unusual budgetary mechanism that allowed the NCI, National Cancer Institute, to request how much money per year they needed to achieve uh, a continued success in developing better ways to diagnose and treat patients with cancer. And that bypass budget is really critical because it takes the budgetary process out of congressional earmarking and back and forth. It just simply says the executive, we'll tell the executive branch what we need, the executive branch will write the budget and we get the budget we need. AIDS would subsequently also get a bypass budget in the early 1990s. Um, 
Alzheimer's disease struggled to obtain the similar kind of funding until the events that I narrate in the book of the late or mid uh, about 2011, 2013. And they're a fascinating set of events. But prior to that, the field struggled really for two reasons. One was the advocacy, the advocates themselves were very hesitant to go to Congress and lobby specifically for Alzheimer's funding. They were very sensitive to the ethic of, or the political perspective that you don't do disease of the month funding. And so that was always a challenge to make the argument that they themselves felt to increase funding. And so it was always these little increments of NIH funding that would raise the overall NIH budget to which Alzheimer's would get some of the spill off. The other problem though, was one that was sort of external to the association, but very much a problem in the field. There were two challenges that the Alzheimer's community struggled with for a long time. The first was making the argument for why is this disease a problem? They faced things like, well, you just can't say it's a big cause of death because it's who wants to live into late stages of Alzheimer's and delay the time before you die. So death from Alzheimer's is a hard thing to get people afraid of. For many people, it's like, well, that's a morally problematic issue in its own. So it was hard to sell with a simple fear of death. And then what you had to do was sell fear of the disease on the basis of things like disability, loss of function, et cetera, which are just harder to translate into simple messages. So what you're left with are like messages that are about caregiving and the challenges to caregiving. But you know, many caregivers see what they're doing as devoted work of family members. And so it's hard to sort of have them see caring for your ill spouse is a burden that you, you know, let's say, well, but you know, I have to do this. So, you know, then it would be about cost and that's cost has often been the one unifying thing that makes the disease perceived to be a problem that we need to do something about. And then the final issue was it's always useful to get Congress to say, to be interested if you say this is a big problem. So the cost problem was there, but the pro the size of the problem was always in dispute namely how many people have Alzheimer's. And I talked in the book, the debates that have started pretty quickly by the late 80s into the 90s that even led to a general accounting administration report over the controversy over how many people have this disease. And it wasn't a controversy in politics. It was actually a controversy in science, namely disagreements amongst epidemiologists and demographers about what's the right way to design a study and interpret the data that claims to count the number of people with Alzheimer's. And it wasn't like some studies were invalid or wrong and other studies were valid. The problem was you could use different methods and assumptions and arrive at very different numbers. And so you have these wildly different numbers of the number of people with Alzheimer's. Well, that might be very interesting for the scientific community to debate, but for Congress, it's like, if you can't even tell me how many people have this disease, then how can I even begin to enter in a conversation about how much we should allocate Etc. Let's move on to something else because we've got a lot of other problems to deal with. You know, the Cold War, whatever. Pick your problem of the day: climate change, you name it. Afghanistan, etc. So, so this field would struggle to really keep the coherent messaging, etc. Until finally, as I narrate in the book, a series of events that unfolded from about 2009 to 2013, which was really some just brilliant politicking on the part of the association to finally uh, get Congress to allocate the funds that were needed. And I'll leave, I'll wrap up with this point. The key thing that they did that I think assured its success was they did it very quietly, but that same approach I think has been one of the reasons why I think there's still been a lot of confusion and frustration on the part of the American people 
because it's not widely known that we're actually investing substantially into Alzheimer's research and actually have a national Alzheimer's plan, which we do. And it's a very real plan. It's a very dynamic document that guides the field. Hmm. Now, so the Affordable Care Act did um, provide some, um, I guess, care reimbursement, right, for caregivers, it, assuming that the state bought into the exchange. Right. Obamacare uh, 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 could also be called the Affordable Care Act, which is actually what the statute is called, could right. also be called the Alzheimer's Care Act, because what it did was it indirectly addressed one of the challenges that the American family faced. So the typical caregiver for a person living with dementia, whether it's caused by Alzheimer's or Lewy body disease or vascular disease, the typical person living with dementia's caregiver is a, a, is a non-spousal caregiver. Most, the, the, it's, the numbers vary, but probably two thirds of caregivers are non-spouses. So they're generally adult children. So I'll give you an example. In my own practice, I have a daughter and granddaughter who care for uh, uh, my, 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 my patient, their mother, grandmother. The granddaughter provides much of the care at home during the day. So she's not in the workforce. So she is not earning a wage. She's not paying into Social Security. She's not earning income that's taxed. She's not contributing her expertise to productive work in the community. She's definitely contributing her expertise to caring for her mother and her grandmother, which is marvelous. And so if you, that economic cost, if you add that up across, um, uh, is the cost of caregiving. Before Obamacare, because she didn't have a job, mm -hmm. she wouldn't have health care because right. she didn't get health insurance. Because in America, until you're 65, the only way you could get your health insurance was you either qualified for Medicaid because you met poverty thresholds or you worked and you had employer based health insurance. Well, if you're a caregiver out of the workforce or with reduced work that doesn't have good benefits because you're working part time, et cetera, up until the Affordable Care Act, you didn't have health insurance. Right. And I mean, the irony there is just beyond belief because you're not get working in getting health insurance because you're caring for someone else in a, you know, in work that itself we know increases your own uh, morbidity and causes you have health problems. And so if there's one thing about the Affordable Care Act, which is a benefit to patients with Alzheimer's, is it gives their caregivers access to health insurance that this granddaughter, for example, can get access to. And so um, it wasn't, I think, part of the rhetoric of why we needed health, the Affordable Care Act but certainly the Affordable Care Act has been very beneficial. And the other point in the Affordable Care Act is a very interesting statute, the ACA. It created the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI. And it has instituted a lot of very innovative programs to try and improve the delivery of care in the healthcare system for persons with dementia. Um, and that was part of the statute of the Affordable Care Act was to create the CMMI, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And of course, in states like I live in, South Carolina, we did not buy into the exchange, so doesn't so help us. So caregivers there much. are living like they were before, which yeah. is trying to figure it out one yeah. family at a time. Um, right. which I don't think is good social policy. Yeah. So um, towards the end of the book, Jason, you write about some really innovative programs that are starting to show up for, around caregiving and around the patients. You mentioned robotic pets that seem to calm the patients living facilities that have designed spaces that kind of resemble neighborhoods and, you know, it all looks familiar. Um, 
And you talk about something called loving deception, but then as the ethicist in you, you raise some moral or ethical questions yeah. around that. Would you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, a theme that runs through a lot of those innovations is the question of the worlds we create uh, for persons living with dementia. And we there's no neutral position in this area, namely it, it you know, I, I've decorated my office at work by my design. I, you know, I mean, I could go out and get new furniture. I could rearrange things. In persons with dementia, um, someone else oftentimes decides what's the space going to be like. Mm -hmm. um, what color will the walls be? What will the aesthetics of the place be? So one of the sort of moral challenges of caregiving is you control the truth for the person around that person, the, the world that they live in. Um, and you're right. One of the more morally challenging moments in the life of a caregiver, in the life of a person living with dementia, is when the person living with dementia asks about a long ago deceased relative as though they were alive. Like, when's mother coming home? Well, you know, mother died decades ago. So what do you do? You know, and um, the standard approach is, well, truth is good. And, you know, truth is essential to creating trust. Truth is essential to uh, legitimate human exchanges. And so you tell the truth. You say, well, you know, mother passed away many years ago. She died. Now, for many persons with dementia, oh, oh, I'm so, I forgot. They move on. For some though, what? She died. You never told me. It, catastrophic uh, uh, anxiety, anger kicks in. And an hour later, when's mom coming home? And you know, would you do this again? So others say, well, to avoid that grief and that you lie and you say, well, you know, um, I, I think she'll be home in an hour, uh, I, but I'm not sure. And, and then you distract them and move on to something else. So it's called the loving deception. Now, there are times when a loving deception is the approach to take. It's just there isn't, I, you know, I just cannot keep on pre precipitating this cascade of anger and I can't seem to distract. Okay. But there's a third way, and I talk about that in the book, in the worlds we create. And the third way comes out of the work of Ann Basting, uh, excuse me, Ann Basting, who's a uh, theater arts uh, scholar at the University of Wisconsin, who's written a book called Creative Care, which I highly recommend. And Ann, she's a good friend, I call her Ann. <laughs> she recommends and promotes this idea of a third way, of a creative way. And the creative way begins with asking beautiful questions as opposed to making statements that are either the truth or a lie based on some choice that you've made in, as a caregiver to either deceive or to tell the truth. And the question might be something like this. So once again, back, you know, when's mom, what's mom coming home? Um, well, if she were here, what would we do with her? <laughs> and that question invites an answer. Like we'd have dinner. Well, what would we have for dinner? And, and, and et cetera. And that kind of, it's almost takes from the improv world of the improv world is yes. And, you know, you, in improv, you actually ask a question. And then after that, you ask another question. That, that's what leads to sort of the, the sort of improv theater approach to drama slash comedy. And if, if you work from that improv perspective of yes, and question, um, you are inviting that person to create the world of, well, if mother were here, and whether mother's here or not, no longer really is the issue. The issue is if she were here, what would we do? So, you know, you and I, Wendy, we, we've been together. We, we ought to get married, said the 
husband to the wife when, you know, I, we've been married for 50 years. What are you talking about? Well, <laughs> we've been married for 50 years or to say, or just to be just devastated by the comment or whatever. And I said, well, wh who would we invite to the wedding? Uh, so, so redirect the conversation. It's kind of like. Well, create the conversation, invite the creative moment to mm. say, you know. Um, asking beautiful questions. I like that. Exactly. That's what Anne calls it. Beautiful questions. Yeah. So, so you know, I think that, you know, and, and so that le led me in the book. I'll, um, you know, these environments that it create nostalgic communities, like let's, oh, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 years from now, I need to go to a long-term care residential community because I have Alzheimer's disease or dementia caused by Alzheimer's or, so, you know, the, there might be this community that's like Philadelphia circa, the past and that's designed so that I feel comfortable there because I have, I remember it better or something like that. So I guess my problem with that is, well, I, I grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey teen, <laughs> and then I went to college and medical school in Chicago and then I lived in Baltimore and I, I didn't get to Philadelphia until I was maybe in my you know early thirties. So what, you know, what Philadelphia would we have me live in? Yeah, what reality should we create yeah. for you? And then, at, you know, and as time passes, um, do we update the aesthetics, you know, and take down the, you know, uh, picture of Mayor Rizzo and replace it with a new mayor? And <laughs> Mayor Rizzo is a problematic mayor anyway, given his uh, racist uh, uh, policies. So, you know, you're left with these nostalgic communities. They seem very charming and everyone's sort of very excited about them but they're fundamentally architectural deception on a grand scale. Like, let me lie to you and put you in an environment that looks like a past environment. Does the staff admit it and say, oh no, that's not real. You know, like there's a there's a community that has on the wall in the library uh, a picture of General Eisenhower. As though he were still president? Yeah, it's like, well, huh. uh, so if, you know, do you play along with that? Or do you say, oh no, Biden's the president, but we're just have that up there so it feels like, you know, now, I get it. There are probably some patients, I call them patients because I am a doctor, where that's about the only thing that's going to work. It's been a mess of, of of efforts and just the only thing that seems to calm is this environment. But again, back to the idea of creativity. Isn't what we all want as humans, and let's again think of persons with dementia as what they are. They're humans. They're people. They're persons with minds, albeit damaged minds, but they have a mind. Don't we want to give minds the opportunity to create the world they want to live in? I mean, you know, you've got a, I see in your background, you've picked some art behind you there and you've mm -hmm. seen how I lay out my office and, mm -hmm. you know, you know, so it, it, in, in other communities like in Holland, what they do is they create uh, long-term care, residential long-term care settings and or day programs where the emphasis is on the aesthetic. So for mm -hmm. example, some of us are modern and we like a modern office with modern furniture Others are traditional. We like classical looking things. Others, you know, et cetera. So go to the long-term care uh, uh, adult day activity program that's set up in a traditional looking setting for those who like the aesthetics. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. what we need to be building. Not building it to look like Philadelphia in 1970, but right. building it with the aesthetics of what folks would like. That's what needs to be done. So there's so much that needs to be done. And and the show, as I said at the beginning, it's about inspiring and motivating people over 50 to continue to be engaged in life and find ways to be engaged. So do you have 
two or three takeaways that you'd like to leave with the audience? Because you say, yeah, what can we yeah. do about it? So, well, first, Wendy, I've had a great time talking with it's you. It's been a fabulous um, conversation. Thank you. Thank you for reading my book, The Problem of oh, Alzheimer's. And if people it. want to learn more about me and my book, yep, there it is. Wonderful uh, Robin's Egg Blue. If people want to learn more about me or the book, I would urge them to um, go to my website, jasoncarlowish.com. We'll show that right now. Well, thank you. Yeah, jasoncarlowish.com. And if you get a chance to up uh, uh, K-A-R-L-A-W. Let me fix it. That's okay. Um, And uh, if you're moved to read the book and have any thoughts, drop me a little note through the website or put a review up on one of those reviewer pages or whatever. But you could just contact me through the website. So let me leave you with some takeaways, though. So we should expect that we will develop ways to diagnose and to treat this disease such that for some people, it's a treatable illness, mm-hmm. much like some cancers are treatable. We can slow it down. Some, For some, it may be very beneficial. For others, not so beneficial. But I think we should see a day when this disease is treatable with drugs. But I don't think we're going to drug our way out of this complicated disease. It's a complicated disease. But as I talk about in the books, there are things we can do right now to be able to live with this, with dementia caused by Alzheimer's or Lewy disease, or vascular disease, or frontal temporal lobar degeneration, or Parkinson's disease. There are ways that we can use technology to monitor ourselves so that people can find out if we're having problems with our finances, with driving, um, with finding our way around the community. We can build memory centers in our communities that can provide diagnosis and care. Uh, we can have hospitals recognize the role of family members as visitors, not just to, uh, as caregivers, not just as visitors. We can design hospitals to reduce delirium so that patients don't suffer devastating confusion when they're ill. All these are things we can do right now. And then finally, there are things you can do right now to maintain your brain health. So I'll make my last shameless plug. If you want to know, what do I do to keep my brain healthy? Uh, Two blocks away from my office is the gym. And I try to go there not every day, but frequently, if not there at home and uh, exercise. Uh, I eat a heart healthy diet and I try to get about eight hours of sleep at night because I'm one of those eight hour type people. Mm, me too. Uh, I need that sleep. If you want to learn more about ways to keep your brain healthy, I would urge you to visit the Global Council on Brain Health. Here's their uh, mug. Okay. Uh, Global Council on Brain Health. I'm a member of it, but it's put together by AARP and it summarizes all the evidence about what's known to keep your brain healthy, exercise, a dietary lifestyle, et cetera as well as what's kind of talked about, but probably isn't that effective. So I'd urge people to go check out the Global Council on Brain Health. Just Google that. Yeah, check out Making Sense of Alzheimer's and by all means, stop off at uh, jasoncarlowish.com while you're surfing. All right. Those- A lot of creative ideas on Making Sense of Alzheimer's. Thank you. So, yes, thank you so much. Um, let me t- briefly tell people about who's coming up next week. It's two sisters. Uh, Dr. Mary Lou Ryder and her sister, Jessica Thompson, they're both advocates for women and girls, and they've co-authored some books and workbooks. They have a sister to sister series of books. And the two that we're going to talk about next week are Know Your Worth Girl and Love Your Age Girl. So it should be a fun conversation. Um, I thank everybody for tuning in today. I know that your time is valuable. This was an incredibly important and useful conversation. And I truly appreciate your time, Dr. Karlowicz. You're welcome. And help me grow the audience. Um, Send people to the website, 
uh, heyboomer.biz. Send people to the podcast and let's get more people in the Hey Boomer wagon train. And remember, you are never too old to set another goal or dream a new dream. My name is Wendy Green. 